0: Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like. I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I ask myself with stories, and, and, and I, I had remember going question. through Novokov's archives. It a question mark in my Imagine head a I'm on your shoulder
1: and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is.
0: Uh, Carefully and Every single, single meticulously, piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. really weird one like, to write, because every time I to write story out, became I'm, a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the so story. Was the you, sense cannot, sense. you cannot, you cannot
1: do these stories. You or you how we uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our
0: experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Kevin Maurer. Maurer is most recently the author of Rock Force, the American paratroopers who took back Corregidor and exacted MacArthur's revenge on Japan. The book was published by Dutton Caliber. Maurer has written eight books, all of them focused on... Maurer has written eight books, all of them focused on the military in some way. In Rock Force, he dives into one relatively small battle during World War II and shows us the men who were there.
1: I sort of jumped at the chance. I didn't know that much about it. Um, I was familiar with it as an airborne operation, but nothing more. And and with my background, I I started really my reporting career in Fayetteville covering paratroopers. So I sort of have a soft spot for them. Uh, And it was a chance to tell a kind of a World War II story that hasn't gotten a lot of press uh, in
0: modern times Mauer has frequently embedded with American soldiers. In 2003, he followed the 82nd Airborne Division during the initial invasion of Iraq and wrote articles for the Fayetteville Observer in North Carolina. He returned to cover the soldiers more than a dozen times, most recently in 2010, when he spent 10 weeks with a special forces team in Afghanistan. Maurer says that all of that work helped him immensely when it came to writing Rock Force.
1: As I started to write the book, uh, and because I had these great manuscripts, I sort of treated it like, what would it have been like if I was embedded with the 503rd when they jumped on correctly? And so I tried to write it as if I, I was reporting it. I liked being with soldiers at the closest to the, to the bottom, with the guys that had to do the order. I was less interested when I was a reporter embedded with the guys giving orders and more interested in the guys doing the order. Uh, and so I tried to write Corregidor from that point of view and, and my experience as an embedded reporter informed the whole way I, I went about telling the story.
0: In 2012, Maurer co-wrote with a former Navy SEAL, No Easy Day, the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. That book was a New York Times bestseller. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Maurer's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Kevin, welcome to Gangry the Podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: I'm excited to talk with you about your book, Rock Force, the American paratroopers who took back Corgador and exacted MacArthur's revenge on Japan. And I know I just asked you if I was pronouncing that correctly, and I think I may have messed it up again.
1: And no worries. There's a lot of pronunciations that are get tricky. Yeah. Cor- Corregidor is a tricky one, but I've spent a, like a good year with this with it and I got to visit it. So I've gotten kind of the hang of, hang of saying it.
0: Well, it's funny that I literally asked you less than five minutes ago <laughs> and still messed it up. So that's my life, I think. Um, can we start things off by you telling me um, a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. So the book came about, um, the, my editor at, at uh, Dutton, his grandfather jumped with the 503rd onto Corregidor. So we were talking about trying to do a World War II book together, and he, he thought, you know, no one's really tackled this story in a narrative, you know, nonfiction sort of way. And so I sort of jumped at the chance. I didn't know that much about it. Um, I was familiar with it as an airborne operation, but nothing more. And, and with my background, I, I started really my reporting career in Fayetteville covering paratroopers. So I sort of have a soft spot for them. Uh, and it was a chance to tell a kind of a World War II story that hasn't gotten a lot of press uh, in modern times and, and in, a, in, a, in a theater of operations that, you know, is often overshadowed by the European theater.
0: Why do you think it hasn't gotten a lot of press?
1: It's a small mission. It's a 10-day battle with a, you know, a couple thousand U.S. troops, and, and there's been some argument among historians about its necessity, which I think takes away from it. It's not one of those moments battles like the invasion of Normandy, where if, if the allies lose the war changes drastically, you know, so I think that's probably one reason.
0: Yeah, what, um, what was what about it then um, uh, made you really, really made you latch on and, and really want to tell the story.
1: I mean, I don't think I really latched onto it until um, I was able to to work with a, an Australian historian named Paul Whitman, who, who helped me kind of get my arms around it. And then I was able to find two unpublished manuscripts, which really served as these really great long form introspective interviews that I could use, uh, which is why I chose to tell it the way I did. So instead of trying to be a sweeping, all encompassing narrative of what happened on Corregidor, In 1945, I instead just picked a few people to follow with the idea that I was much more interested in the individual experience than I was the the kind of the collective experience and the strategy behind it. Uh, And these two manuscripts, one by Bill Calhoun and one by uh, Captain Bradford, um, Charlie Bradford, also just allowed me to tell a more intimate story. And that's where I kind of leaned in from there.
0: Did you do a lot of research on this before you finally decided I'm doing a book on this?
1: Not as much as I probably should have. No, um, I, I had interest from a publisher, so it was a matter of getting the, the you know, my research on this and really was a feasibility. Could I pull it off? Was there a story that was worth telling? And was it could I could I tell it? And and once I kind of checked those two boxes, um, I worked hard on getting the proposal ready. And then once they uh, they bought the proposal, it became sort of how am I going to tell it now versus um, you know could I.
0: How long did it take you to find those uh, those journals that played such I was a big lucky. role?
1: Well, I was lucky that Paul Whitman has a pretty good website and, and some of the some of the unpublished manuscripts had been cleaned up and, and published in parts, but no one has actually published the whole book. And so using that thread, I was able to track down Bill Calhoun, who, who really becomes, the, for, those who, for those who are familiar with uh, Band of Brothers, you know, Bill Calhoun is my Dick Winners. He's the guy that really holds the book together. And, and I was able to find his daughter and his daughter- let me come down to Texas and she gave, she let me rummage around in his papers. And, and I found a red notebook with a dot matrix printer printed out a uh, draft of his, his uh, manuscript with his handwritten notes on it. And, and that really became the Holy grail of the book. And from there, I sort of built around it.
0: What was that like to read that, to, to that dot matrix printout and how thorough was it? It was pretty thorough.
1: Um, and then I found out later that Paul had gotten a copy, an early copy of his manuscript and helped him edit it a little bit. But I really found the one that he wrote without any help much more insightful. It was, it was, it was, there was an intimacy, intimacy to it, right? I mean, you're seeing a man put down, you know, one of his a traumatic experience, but also an experience I think defines his life. And you can see it on the dot metrics paper. You can see it the way he's unpacking the story. And, and I think it gave me very much a, a, a sort of emotional connection to the story that I don't think I would have had if I had just stayed uh, as a, as a, as a journalist or, or as a historian and just kind of covered it from that, that point of view.
0: Do you know how long ago he actually wrote that? Not officially.
1: No, I, th- I, I want to say it was probably in the nineties, maybe early two thousands at best, but I, I think that, uh, I think this was something he struggled to to get on paper, and he struggled to get his arms around. And I and I think that was what attracted me most to 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 Calhoun is that he isn't the stereotypical World War II soldier who believes in the in the greater cause. He really brings it back to the fact that he has to lead his men into these 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 ambushes, and he loses guys, and you see him suffer through that survivor's guilt. And I think it's an important piece of this war that I don't know is is told as as often as it should be.
0: There are a couple other manuscripts that you were able to use as well. Uh, Who did they belong to and how did you find those as well?
1: Uh, Paul was able to get me a copy of Charlie Bradford's manuscript. He had, he, he had built a, a, uh, he's got a great archive of photos and he put a kind of a photo book together around it and self published it. Uh, But Charlie Bradford's uh, the, the battalion surgeon and what makes his manuscript so cool is he's one, he's a really good writer. 2 he's got great insight into the soldiers and being that he was a doctor and he was at the aid station and all of these wounded guys would come to him. He picks up all these great threads and stories and I think he's able to, to give you that, that larger scope, but in a, in a very intimate way, which, is, which allows the reader to, to walk with Charlie and, and, and there's a couple of times he goes out with the guys as they patrol and I thought that was a really great that's the as close to you the experience of being an embedded with a, a unit as you could get and so I really kind of had that perspective in the from my own work and was able to really use that I think to tell the story as well
0: um, was there was there a third I, I thought maybe there was a third or maybe I missed. I'm Never-
1: uh, Chet Nycom has a, has a really long oral history that I was able to, to extract some stuff with. And then I interviewed Tony Lopez, who, who, uh, was a PSC. He had, he had written his own pamphlet. Um, it wasn't a true manuscript. It was probably maybe 30 pages, mm. but it was also pretty good about giving his insight. Um, and then I was able to talk to Tony, um, before he passed.
0: What was that like to talk with him? I mean, given so, so much more was coming from, um, uh, people who had written, written stuff. Um, what was it like uh, in terms of talking with someone?
1: It was great because I could, I could get a second opinion on, on, on events. I could talk to him about their, their reputation and how people viewed them from afar. Uh, but I also got a good sense of, of sort of the old soldier. Um, all the soldiers are sort of the same, but few of them really want to talk about the action that they've experienced. They mostly want to talk about the fun, funny stuff. And so I was able to build that into the story, which is why when, you inter- when I introduced the unit I really introduced them as this kind of band of marauders that are waiting to get a mission and are, 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 you know, pillaging this Island and stealing trucks and stealing supplies and stuff. And so I think, I think he helped me really bring in this kind of, uh, the way the, the way they viewed themselves and that sort of pirate mentality that they took to, to, to their unit.
0: Can you tell me how you ended up structuring the book, how it was set up, uh, and, and why you went that route?
1: What is it, Elmore Leonard said he tries not to, he tries to cut out the parts that people skip. Um, That's how I I tried to do it. I tried to make it as coffee breath close as you, I could get you to the characters and try to keep it as tight to the mission as I could. I I just didn't think there was a a need to get too wide. And so we try, we started, I think right, right before the mission. And and then it ends at the end of the mission. Uh, We don't really go much farther than that. And, And that was done on purpose to keep it tight and lean and fast.
0: Had you done any, uh, you've done, you've written more than one book, obviously. Had you ever had a book that was, had that tight of a narrative before?
1: No. And, and, and the beauty of it is it's a, it's a, what a three mile wide Island and a 10 day battle. It's, it's sort of perfectly, you couldn't create a better battle to, to do that kind of really tight narrative for.
0: Right. Because there's not stuff going on a million different places. Right.
1: Right. And it doesn't, it plugs into the big strategy but not in a way that it, it becomes that you need to explain the big strategy too much or that it, it it bleeds into like the next big hump that they had to get over. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, ultimately I, I always ask this question because I'm always fascinated. How much time did you have to actually work on on this project?
1: It took me, I think a little more than a year. And and that's because Florence hit Wilmington where I live and, uh, that, that derailed some writing, uh, it made it a little more difficult to get it done. But, um, I think it took me a year and a. Year and a couple months to get done.
0: Do you uh, do you do you like the reporting or the writing part better?
1: I always like the reporting better. The writing part is not my favorite part. Um, the, the 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 I like the writing when it's done. Um, I don't like and it take. I think most books take me about seven drafts to get to get to to where I'm kind of happy with it. And so, you know, the first two drafts are pretty bad they're they're really just collections of words and buckets and then like three through four or five is when i actually do the writing and then six and seven are, are polished so um but i like chasing the story and i like finding filling in the holes and i like talking to the people and i like that part the best
0: i'm assuming you have a a, a great editor to work with as well
1: yeah brent is amazing and and i i like a mean editor um, I think my experience at AP has made me a little immune to the mean editor. Um, you know what I look for, and I like in an editor is one who wants you wants the story to be as good as you want it to be, and and that's as long as we're all pulling the same, I can take the take the beating, and I often need it. I'm I'm a I'm a pretty sloppy writer to be honest. I work quickly, and uh, and I think I need an editor to really come in and make sure. Um, particularly on that. So I I have, I have nothing but praise for editors and copy editors because copy editors have saved me.
0: Yeah. I'll never forget um, the second story I wrote for SB nation long form way, way back in 2013. Glenn Stout responded to the first draft with, you got a good start. And then he listed 50 things that needed (laughs) addressed. So, and it made the story better. And that, and I think we ignore that sometimes too much or too many writers ignore that. I think you have, um, a really great way of um describing the military operations that were happening on the island um and i'm thinking sp- especially the um the paratrooping right when they're jumping out of the plane uh, you doing it uh, writing it in a way that is not confusing to a non-military person does does that make sense yeah
1: yeah I mean, How?
0: How are you able to do that? <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> lots of practice. I wasn't very good at it when I first got to Fayetteville. Where I've covered the military for a long time, and I covered it for a general interest newspaper. So I'm, I'm okay with dumbing it down. I'm okay with getting yelled at by the military for dumbing it down and trying to make it so it's it's civilians can can do it. Um, I've been lucky in that I've seen I've seen paratroopers jump and I've been on the ground to see it and I've been in the plane to see it so I have a good sense of what it's like I've not done it myself um, for a while there we were I was flirting with the 82nd to let me go to jump school in case they ever needed needed a reporter to jump which seemed like they didn't and it never came to fruition because I think smarter people got a hold of that idea but um, the military to me is just another language so I, I try to just translate it into into English um, so that's how I sort of approach it.
0: In terms of um, the book itself and the reporting and the writing of the book itself, was there anything that like really stood out that really, um, I don't know, that surprised you or just sticks with you? And, and you're so grateful that you've been able to, 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 to learn about that and then to share it with other people.
1: I just like Bill Calhoun's story. I think Bill Calhoun, you know, we, we, we have a lot of guys uh, out of World War II that we, we honor as heroes and that we remember uh, for their service. And I, and I think Bill Calhoun fits into that, into that group. And, and so it's sort of, I, I, I love the, uh, the chance that I got to, to tell his story. Uh, and it was important from the beginning. Once I was able to get his manuscript, to do the best job I could, and, and to make sure he, his family was proud. And so, the best review I got on the book was when they wrote back after reading it, and, and we're and we're really happy with it. So, um, to me, you know, I think Bill Calhoun is the kind of officer that you you as a parent want your son to serve under, and, and you and it's he's kind of the officer we want in our military. He represents something of the best of us, and, he, and in a very trying time. So, you know. That was the surprise for me.
0: Yeah, what made what made what about him made him that way?
1: I like the way that he balances getting his mission done and taking care of his men. And I think the way that he led his men through example and through being with them and and, and not really and and then taking care of them first and knowing that if his men were taken care of, that the mission would get done because they would be you know they would be willing and able and equipped to do it. And and I just appreciated the way that he went about his job and and he took the leadership seriously, but not in an academic way, but in a, in a practical way. And I, I like that.
0: Did you um, do any traveling at all in reporting on this? You didn't go to the Island, did you, or did you?
1: I did. I, I spent a week in some change there with Paul Whitman. I walked around the Island uh, at that point in the draft. I had a good sense of what the story was. So I walked everywhere that Paul, uh, you know, Bill Calhoun was, I, I, I found the building where, lopez was after the jump you know i walked up and down those ravines uh is an amazing place to visit um it's it's still got all the ruins um you can still walk through all the tunnels we were in the under the magazines in the tunnels i mean it's it's really an amazing place
0: what were you able to take away from that trip that that helped in 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 the book
1: It, it it's invaluable to actually go to the place where something happened right and see it and touch it and smell it and and to be able to sort of you know, by spending a couple of nights there, I, I could get, you could get a sense of the cycle of what was happening there. What does it sound like in the morning? What does it sound like at night? You know, um, and then seeing these concrete structures and being able to walk up to them. And, and so when I'm, when I'm writing about what, you know, Bill saw was he's approaching Battery Wheeler, for example, which is a massive concrete, you know, it's got two massive gun, gun emplacements. Um, and it ends up becoming a bunker where the Japanese are, it's a hard point for them. Um, but I walked down the path that he walked. You know, I could see what it looked like as it was coming up over the horizon. Like the, the, that kind of stuff is invaluable when you're trying to write um, a book. I'm, I'm working on a book right now about a bomber pilot. And I've, I've never been in a B-17. I, I've gone the virtual tour. You know, I, I, I could ask him what it sounds like. But, you know, have, if I could fly in a B-17, I could tell you what it sounds like. So, you know, get, anytime I can get my hands on something, you know, I did a book about Che Guevara. And I, I, we went all over Bolivia. We followed his path through Bolivia so we could
0: know what happened. I've been talking with Kevin Maurer. He is the author of Rock Force, which is now available. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangery the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Kevin Maurer. He wrote the book Rock Force about the American paratroopers who took back the island of Corregidor in World War II. How long have you been covering? You got your start covering military, right?
1: Right. Well, yeah, I was, I was, I was in DC in 2001. I was covering OSHA for a newsletter and then, um, I got hired by the Fayetteville observer in uh, North Carolina in 2003 and I've been covering the military since then. Yeah. So.
0: A lot of your writing has been focused on military operations and the military in general. And you talked a little bit about how that all came about. Um, Do you feel like um, doing that type of reporting previously helped you on Rock Force in terms of the writing of it?
1: Oh, uh, um, yeah, because I honestly, as I started to write the book uh, and because I had these great manuscripts, I sort of treated it like, what would it have been like if I was embedded with the 503rd when they jumped on Corregidor? And so I tried to write it as if I, I was reporting it. So, you know, I, used to, I used to go find the, the aid station where Charlie Bradford was, and I used to try to do some reporting around there because I knew it was a nexus point for stories. I, you know, I liked being with soldiers at the closest to the, to the bottom, with the guys that had to do the order. I was less interested when I was a reporter embedded with the guys giving orders and more interested in the guys doing the order. Uh, and so I tried to write *Corregidor* from that point of view, and and so I, it, you know, my experience as an embedded reporter informed the whole way I, I went about telling the story.
0: You, when when's the first time that you embedded as a reporter?
1: It was uh, what March, March two thousand three, yeah, around the time when the Iraq invasion. I I got to Iraq and got in. I think on the second to last plane or that got into Kuwait.
0: What. Were you doing that for, who, who were you doing that for?
1: For the favourite observer. Yeah. Okay. It was me and uh, a photographer named Steve Abear was the first embed for them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What um, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm, I'm so curious about is uh, what made you want to do that type of reporting?
1: I mean, Both my parents are veterans. My, 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 my dad was a Vietnam veteran. My mom was a Vietnam veteran. Um, So I've, I've always listened to the stories. My dad was a big military historian fan or history fan. So he, he told a lot of stories. Um, I was, I was near the Pentagon in 2001. So it was a story I wanted to tell as a young reporter. I mean, you get a chance to tell the biggest story in the world. You, you want to do it. Um, and then, so I got to the job at Fayetteville with the, with the idea that they would let me travel and, and the circumstances worked out where I got a chance to travel pretty quickly. I, I got the job in January. I was in Iraq in March. and so. Um, I mean, look, let's just be honest, it's kind of crass, but I mean, at the end of the day you want to, it was the biggest story at the time. You wanted a chance to tell it. And then um, once I got there, I just didn't want to leave. I I just liked being in the story. I liked the idea of an embed. I liked being around the the soldiers. And like going back to what we talked about before, I I liked seeing geopolitical events and policy, what it looks like to the guy at the bottom who has to actually do it. And so that kind of, I mean, Ernie Pyle did that in World War II, right? He was great at doing the GI version of the war. And, and I, I think I just tried to be a poor man's Ernie Pyle.
0: The one thing I think about when I think about like just doing narrative journalism in general is the whole point is to try and like be that fly on the wall and embed with people in general. And, and it seems like embedding with troops is like that times a thousand, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the the where embedding gets tricky is that you rely on these guys every day, right? They feed you, they drive you around, they protect you at night, like you're not on guard duty. They're the ones that are protecting you. So, I mean, you have to be careful about worshiping the soldiers. You have to be careful about taking their humanity away by making them all heroes. I mean, I think you've got to keep a keen eye. And, and one of the things I, I often would do on embeds before they start, before I even take the notebook out is we have a little come to Jesus meeting about like, this is my job, that's your job, here's what we're doing, Make you know? And, and I'm, I'm very big on um, creating a very strict rules. If I have the notebook out, you're on the record, you know? So if you see me with the notebook, you're on the record. If, if, if you say something I wanna use and I don't have the notebook out, I'm gonna ask you for permission for it. Otherwise, we're always off the record because otherwise they never let you in. You're just, you're a pariah, right? And so, you know, you have to kind of come up with the ground rules uh, of when you do these things, but but you have to mentally keep in mind that these guys are not heroes. They're not to be worshipped. They'll make them into comic book characters. There's a great line that uh, Bradford's friend says at the end of, of, of Rock Force where he says, you know, our mission's over. Now it's becomes, we're like comic book heroes now. They're going to turn this into something it isn't. And so that that's stuck in my head, I think, for a long time.
0: This isn't just a guess, but but... They probably don't want to be seen as comic book heroes either, right?
1: No, not at all. I mean, it takes away it takes away from the sacrifice. It takes away from what they did. I mean these these are these are professionals. These are men who who are fighting mostly when when they you know mostly to the for the guys to their left and right, and they're fighting to to make sure that their friends and their colleagues you know are safe and they're doing their job. So when you turn them into anything other than you know professionals doing their job really well, I think you do them a disservice.
0: When, you, when, you, when you've embedded in the past, were you uh, was it for one big story, or were you writing regular stories you know, on a regular basis, and, and, and what's that like?
1: It, it depends. I've done it both ways. Most of the time I would go into an embed with a big story in mind. There's a, there was like a big story I was taking home. It was one I was going to report the whole length of the embed and then, and then be able to kind of step out and write it smartly um and then other than that you pre- i would write because it's a newspaper it's a daily newspaper i tried to keep a pretty steady flow of, of stories and you can find stuff i mean I, i've written everything from you know raids to um i know one of the bases in afghanistan the guys have joked that the the guard tower was haunted and so i wrote a haunted story you know i mean it, it's all there and you can find any kind of story you want to find.
0: yeah another book that you've worked on uh uh, was uh, No Easy Day, the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. Um, you worked with Matt Bissonette on that piece, or on that book. Um, what, how did that collaboration work? And had you done anything like that before?
1: Um, I had worked with other veterans to tell their stories at that point. Um, and that book came about, you know, he was looking for somebody to to write a book. And... Um, my agent knew the editor and that's how I got, I got a chance to kind of audition for the gig. Uh, He, you know, he interviewed every, all the prospective authors, he picked me. And, and then we, we ran that one fast. I think I was doing two chapters a week and we were running, we were doing interviews in the morning. I was transcribing and writing in the afternoon and, and, and I was turning it in, you know, and and it took me seven drafts. uh, And I know that for the, the editor and and some of the folks who are watching this thing kind of kind of get birthed we're we're concerned at first because the first drafts are always pretty bad but but yeah we we were in a pretty pretty fast sprint and it was a pretty steady flow of of chapters coming in
0: when you were young did you know you you wanted to be a journalist
1: no huh i mean i i got into reporting um I was a freelancer in Boston, and I could get free tickets and free CDs. Like it was really, it was really pretty crass. And then I, I realized that I was mostly interested in being a reporter because I like to dabble in other pe- things without having to commit fully to them. So I didn't have to join the military to go experience what the military does. I didn't have to, you know, do any of the sacrifice. I could just go and and do the and experience it. And and then I, you know, I, I just found that it being a reporter let me exercise my intellectual curiosity so if it interests me and i could figure out a way to pitch it i could go do it
0: did you did uh did you go to college i'm assuming you went to college
1: yeah i went to old dominion university in norfolk yeah
0: what did you major in
1: political science and i got a minor in geography because i could double up my poli sci classes for geography and get a cheap minor at the end of it (laughs) i mean i was a terrible student too like
0: i was a horrible student and now i'm a college professor which is kind of scary i think did it start with music? You 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 were writing about music in Boston.
1: Yeah, I mean, I started writing about you know CDs and stuff. That's when the internet—you could still get you know five hundred dollars for a crappy review—and so, you know, I was doing that a little bit. And I was writing some features. I remember I worked at a local paper in Dorchester for a little while and did some some work there. And that's—I really loved being a reporter. I just didn't know how to do it because I, I didn't study it. I never really wanted to do it um, until then. So you know, that's where I sort of got the bug
0: for it. When, uh, how long had you been doing that type of work before you ended up in Fayetteville and what drew you to Fayetteville? So I
1: went from freelancer to, I, I, I felt like I needed to get a staff job. So inside Washington Publishers produces these newsletters. Um, and I got hired to write about OSHA for, I think the circulation was 700 people. But what, what the, the cool part about this was I had two good editors there, uh, Klaus Moray and, uh. Uh, Bob Cusack and they taught me how to be a reporter and and what the 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 wrinkle on this was is that you couldn't write about what happened, you had to write about what was going to happen. Because the people who read the newsletter were policymakers and they wanted to know what was coming they didn't really care what the press release so you know we would do a story, we would you know do a story about ergonomics or something. And then, you know, a month and a half later, OSHA would put out a a, a press release saying exactly what we said in our story. So we had to be ahead of the curve, which, which is a different way of reporting. And it taught me a lot about being a reporter, but I worked there for a couple of years, uh, got the job right around nine 11 and then got, you know, worked there a couple of years, but I wanted to cover the war. I wanted to be a military reporter. Uh, You know, I, I had, I had become sort of fascinated with that sort of reporting. And so, um, when the Fayetteville Observer advertised the job, um, and, and one of the ten, you know one of the tenants of the job was you could travel with, with the with the you know embedded with embed with soldiers, I uh, I had to try it. I didn't think I could get it, but I I was able to get an interview for some reason, and and I went down there and uh, wasn't going to let them say no. So,
0: have you written about your parents? I
1: haven't. Mm-mm.
0: Is it something you might do someday?
1: I've talked to them about it. It's a little I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it'd be a neat book because I think they were in Vietnam at the same time. So it would be a really interesting book to tell it from their th- two points of view. My mom's got some phenomenal stories, too, about, you know, there's a lot of shenanigans, I think, in those hospitals, right? Like a little bit of, it'd be like a mix between MASH and, you know, uh, something else. I don't know. I mean, I, I've i never seriously considered it. I guess that's the best answer for you. I'm just but interested Good question, though.
0: Mean- no. What's that? You know, because I mean, you said, uh, I mean, that's the, it was their stories, you know, that made you that, that is what has interested you in, in going and doing this type of reporting. So I don't know, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll just wait for the the memoir slash reported story on your parents coming out in, a, in, a, in, like 10 years or so.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I do, I do owe the publisher a book, so maybe that's uh, maybe I got to add that to the list one, but yeah, that's a, that's a good, I mean, it's like I said, it's a good idea. I flirted with it. Um, Maybe. I mean,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said what's the, you, you mentioned a book that you're working on right now. Um, how far into, uh, into it are you and, and when can we expect it, uh, on bookshelves someday?
1: I've got to turn it in April 5th and it'll be out probably early April next year. Um, it's a, I was, I've been lucky enough to work with a, a, a bomber pilot that flew 25 missions over Nazi Germany in 1943 and early 44. Uh, he's still alive. He's down in in Texas, and I talk to him weekly, and uh, and it's been an amazing kind of uh, story of, of of you know his experience. Uh, it's really centered on one big mission. It's it's the only mission he thought he was gonna he was gonna die, and uh, we get into get into that, but we use it to tell a kind of a bigger story. It's cool. It's, it's been a lot of fun to write, it, and I got it right before COVID hit, so it's been really really helpful to have something to to get you know to work on.
0: Yeah. Do you just talk with him on the phone or, or how do you talk with him? Yeah. Yeah. Ha- have you been able to visit with him?
1: No, I was supposed to go down there right before and then everything shut down. I and mean, then he's, he got vaccinated. I think already I, I got the vaccine, so I'm almost ready. We're, we'll I'll see him soon. Um, I think we're, we're set this to, to catch up here. Uh, he's got an event coming up that I think he's we're going to catch up on, but you know, I've never met him in person, but I've talked to him for what a year now.
0: I mean, it's great to get these stories of the world war two, um, uh, veterans because we're getting farther and far you know, we're farther away from the war and they're, and they're uh, shrinking in numbers. So it'll be great to, to have one more story from, from those, uh, from those men and women. So.
1: You know, it's interesting though, having reported on modern soldiers and reported on um, even soldiers from the, you know, the Vietnam era uh, and then reporting with world war II veterans. And, and I'd be interested to hear other people you've talked to if, if they've run into this, and maybe I'm just not a great review uh, interviewer, but the, I'm finding it—it's interesting when you tell a modern—if you ask a modern story, what a modern soldier, what happened when he tells the story, it's very cinematic. It's very texture. It's very smell. What he saw, what he heard. World War II veterans, I'm finding, will lay out the story in basic fact, but they don't give you that texture, and you kind of have—it takes you a while to draw it out of them, right? And and I and I—I I, I was for a while. I've been struggling with like, am I just not good at this? Am I am I asking the wrong questions? Like. I'm using all my tricks; it's they're not working. And what I think I've I, I, my hypothesis is, we were we grew up on movies and TV. These guys did not, and so they have a different way of communicating that same story. Where if you put a modern guy in that that cockpit, I, he could tell me what like how the seat was scratchy, right? Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, what do you think? That's the theory.
0: That's the that's the first thing I thought was movies, right? And, right. and also, I also thought, oh my gosh, that has to make writing any type of narrative that much harder, right? If they're not thinking of those things, right, and they're not, mm-hmm. that's not the stuff that's lodged in their brains, uh, right. or at least it's not the stuff that's just coming out uh, like immediately. So, um, yeah, I don't. That that's 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 really interesting. So, well, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I just want to let everyone know Rock Force, uh, the American paratroopers who took back Corgador and exacted MacArthur's Revenge on Japan is available. Uh, Check it out. It's a great book. Uh, And Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been talking with Kevin Maurer, the author of Rock Force, the American paratroopers who took back Corregidor and exacted MacArthur's revenge on Japan. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Maurer's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G A N G R E Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G A N G R E Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.